Andrea and I need your help. If you like our episodes, please give us a five-star rating and a review. Not sure exactly how that helps us, but it does, and it makes people want to listen. When they see that five stars and a good review from you, So go to wherever you're listening to your podcasts, Apple, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartMedia, wherever, and hit that five stars. Crime is a real thing. Murder is rare, but does happen. While not all of us will experience something this terrible, what if the murdered, or worse, the murderers, never leave even though they are dead? What do we do when we find our present haunted by the past? What do we do when it's supposedly not all in our heads, but real? Are these things, are these beings, even real? Are they crying out for help or are they looking for their next victim? Our guest today is Randy Overbeck, a researcher and author of literally haunting true crimes and the disarray left behind. Randy, how are you doing today? Uh, Afternoon. It's uh, great to be here. Excellent. Excellent. So tell us a little bit about what you got going on. You've written a bunch of books. Uh, My recent work involves a a trilogy of three books so far called The Haunted Shores Mysteries. Um, the, uh, The first reviewer described it as a cold case murder mystery wrapped in a ghost story served with a side of romance set in a beautiful resort location. It's not and one of those one of, romance novels, is it, Randy? Oh, there's enough romance to uh, attract those who are interested in that, but they are... H- housewife they, porn? Oh, my gosh, stop. What? Let's just, I, I mean, guess what romance novels are? The housewife porn? You, you've well, there's them. everything in romance, from sweet romance to hot. <laughs> I'm just teasing. <laughs> and this is more on the sweet side. And um, This is no buff gardeners, huh? No. Um, <laughs> I'm just teasing. <laughs> but you've done a lot of, of research the that, with these, right? One of the things that characterizes my books, I, I'm a, um, I, I served children in education for almost four decades. And that as makes a result everything of that, I, I, I just said very, really creepy. <laughs> a very, <laughs> I, I did a great deal of research in my previous career and I transferred those skills into my writing skills. So all of the books, the, the three books are meticulously researched in every way. And that includes what we're here to talk about today. And that includes ghosts, which is only one element of the story, but it is an important element. So in your research, now where can we find your books? Anywhere and anywhere people get books, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Apple books, they're available. Is, uh, from that's, a company uh, what did, uh, uh, David Edwards say he quoted me saying any half-assed retailer is going to have them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> any place that carries books, either digitally or in print, and they're all three also available on audio as well. Audio. So if you ever need somebody to read your audio book, just saying. You know, always looking for sidekicks. 
Well, you know, some people like to read while they drive in the car. You could do it. You got the sexy voice today. You've been sick. Yeah. You've been sick, though. I've been sick. I had the flu. I'm getting better, though. I'm not, lo- no longer contagious. I don't have no a fever. No longer contagious? Yes. I don't know. It depends. I have to keep those guys at bay. Oh, gosh, stop. What? So, um... She doesn't like it whenever I try to make her feel better. She's been, she's been to... upset all day. You know, when your head is so congested, you feel like it's three times its size. Sometimes you tend to be just, you know... I don't know. A little out of sorts. Um, so, you said you do... <laughs> Meticulous research. Um, what type of research do you do for the ghost part of your stories? Well, in each place that I have set my story, I research uh, what the stories about ghosts, what the tales uh, of the local ghosts uh, exist in that area. So the first book takes place on the Chesapeake Bay, on the eastern shore of Chesapeake Bay. So I did a lot of research on that. I've also done a great deal of research on ghosts just across the world, finding I'm kind of amazed that I I was not a big, uh, I did believe in ghosts, but that was not a big issue for me. But the more I learned, the more surprised I became. Um, For example, did you know that every religion in the world has as part of its dogma a belief in ghosts? So it doesn't make any difference if you're Hindu or if you're Jewish yeah. or if you're Christian. All of them believe in ghosts. Of some sort. So what is of the... Dif- different kinds, yeah. What does the Jewish doctrine say? Well, there's actually... Jewish actually believe in a couple of different ghosts. They're, one of their more well-known ghosts are called the bunks. And these are evil spirits that can take over somebody else's body. So Andrea has been on a kick for the past year to try to figure out how to write a story about it, the book. And she tried to do some research and she couldn't find anybody willing to talk about it. It's, it's kind of, I don't want to say a taboo in Jewish culture. It's just not a well-known topic right. because it's considered, I guess, I don't know, um, like anything like folk tales or stories or things like that. Every culture has them. It's just not one of right. those things that's typically like talked about and rabbinical school and things like that. So to find a book on it, that's actually going to tell you anything about it is it's hard. There was a play that was written a long, long time ago. I can't remember the name of it, but we found uh, that book in the bookstore on Dixon street. Yeah. So I've been kind of curious about it. I've had a store running in my head for gosh, since I was a teenager that I've been wanting to get on paper out of my head basically, but it has to do with a book. She won't let me touch it. I'm, I'm not, like, I can help you. I'm not done. Well, I need See, she won't let me well, touch it. Andrew, you're, you're exactly right. Almost all of the religious beliefs are tied to the folktale of that culture. But I, my point is that when you have that much consistency across every religion, it, it cannot be a coincidence. There has to be some thread of reality that runs across that for that to actually work. Uh, I also discovered... Did you know that half of the people, one in five Americans, believe in ghosts? So, I, I could say that's probably about right. And uh, One in two. I'm sorry. One in two Americans and one in five Americans have actually had an encounter with a ghost. Hmm. So those See, numbers are pretty convincing in terms of for somebody to say, well, there's no such thing. It, it's rough for me because I'm not discounting that it could be true because who knows? It could be true. Uh, tough for me because I've never experienced anything like that. And the things that I have experienced are 
I've proven that they're in my head. Like that deal when I was a kid, I thought there was a ghost in my closet. So I got my <laughs> fake gun and killed the ghost in my closet. And I was never bothered by a ghost ever again in my life. True. But I mean, like what other types of research have you come across in your travels about ghosts that you make that you feel like they're more real? Like any well, white papers or any it, type of scientific stuff? Well, to the ex- it's very difficult uh, from a scientific point of view to be able to prove the existence uh, based on um, scientific method. Yeah, but for but to to Paul's point, uh, I've I've encountered numerous uh, situations where an, a, a more than one individual encounters the same ghost in the same space. Um, I, I do a presentation called "Things Still Go Bump in the Night" for clubs and organizations and stuff. And at the end of the presentation, about every other time, I've done this about fifty times now, all over the United States. About every other time, somebody will come up to me and talk to me about uh, a house that they're um, that they inherited. Usually, it's my mother-in-law's house or something like that, and they move in, and children and Adults will both talk about having an experience of encountering this ghost, hearing the ghost, smelling the ghost. That's a very common uh, pipe smoke, something like that, that, that was familiar with the ghost before. That's a very common example that comes around. So um, how, have you done any research into the people that do like witchcraft or shaman, 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 shamanism, shaman, 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 shamanism, I have not. (laughs) (laughs) We've had, you know, we had, we've had a shaman on or someone who claims to be learning to be a shaman still because he wouldn't identify as a shaman because his head of his peers would call him out. Then we've had a witch, uh, a man that has, uh, he's able to shake Jesus's hand. And um, what was the other guy? Oh, and then a guy that can, uh, he can, he can channel your, I'm not if he's channeling uh, your, your deceased pets. And I'm still not sold on any of this. And so can, is there, have you ever done any research into clearing houses and things like that? I'm not sure I know what you mean by clearing houses. Um, you mean a scientific group well, working on this? They there's they called saging. Oh no, I have not. I'm sorry. No, I, you know, and and my what I have lived, what I have focused my research on was trying to get clear what's been documented about ghosts. So there are a a number of things that are consistently reported about ghost interactions. Like one of the most common misunderstandings is, and probably we have Stephen King and Shirley Jackson to thank for that, is that almost all ghosts are are benevolent. There are very few. Yeah, benevolent. Benevolent. There are very few instances of actual ghost sightings with any kind of documentation that has um, that show any kind of ill intent. There are a few, okay. but it's very rare. Most ghosts are uh, 
somehow stuck between this world and the next. At least that's the scientific consensus. One of the most one of the most surprising scientific findings that I've that I have of real ghosts has to do with temperature. Are you familiar with that? Yes. So this is the most common documented example of a spiritual presence is a the ability to control temperature. Uh, no one really knows how this works. There are several theories as to why it occurs, but that it has been documented a yeah. numerous times. Well, David Edwards brought up a David Edward. Uh, he brought up a good point. He's the guy that says claims that he knows where Atlantis is. We have, and this podcast will air after that podcast. So, uh, which is still in the box. I haven't quite edited it, edited it out yet. But he was saying that it makes sense because they have to draw energy from somewhere. So his supposition was that this drawing energy out of the molecules, and as you know, as a school teacher, everything vibrates even when you think it's not. And so when you bring that vibration down, the friction goes down and everything gets cold. So that's what he yep. was thinking. That's, that he, he thinks that that is going to be uh, the reason why the rooms get cold when you walk in. And, and I have heard that theory. And, and one of the most – and, Paul, I got to tell you that uh, seven, eight years ago when I started down this path initially, I was kind of where you were. I wasn't a skeptic. I wouldn't have described that, but I certainly wouldn't have been described as a believer either. And I had a session. I, I attended a session presented by a ghost hunting group. Okay. Um, it, the group is actually called uh, Indiana Paranormal, Central Indiana Paranormal Site, C-I-P-S. Anyway, okay. um, they showed me some evidence that I thought was pretty doggone Stunning. So they had been called to investigate a room about 10 by 20. We need to get those people on the podcast then so we can talk to them. I will be happy to send that information to you after. Thank you. Uh, uh, um, they, they were supposed to be haunted. They did what they normally do. So I don't know how much you know about this, but when they go to a haunting, to, trying to debunk or confirm a haunting, they'll bring all kinds of scientific equipment. They'll bring audio equipment, they'll bring video equipment, they'll bring photographic equipment, they'll bring temperature equipment, they'll bring an EMT, another, which I don't have time to go into because I don't yeah. understand the, the technology behind it. And they, they, and then for us, this is all afterwards, they were showing us the recordings of what they recorded there. They did not get any photographic evidence. They did have audio evidence of, an, of a voice, of a voice of a young woman asking for help. But what really convinced me was, so to do the temperature thing, what they do is they bring a very sensitive thermometer and set it up in the middle of the space that they're doing. And then so to eliminate human error, they take another video camera and focus on that temperature gauge for the entire three hours. They're, they're there between midnight and three o'clock. Three times during that time, the temperature in the room, which I'm just going to guess was in the 60s, I don't remember anymore, but 62, I'll say. And we're watching this video feed, and and in 10 seconds, the 62 degrees dropped to 42 degrees, 20 degrees, just like this. And it stayed down for maybe two minutes, came back up. A little while later, the same thing repeated, and there was actually a third. They, they fast-forwarded through the video, then there was a third time. Hmm. They said it corresponded with when they recorded the voices. I'm just taking their word for that. But yeah. this was very real. Now, since I saw that from my own eyes, 
I have researched, and this is a very common phenomenon that is scientifically verifiable that they, this happens over and over again when people are claimed to have an existence of ghosts. Pretty convincing. I, f- I found it to be. Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate here just for a second. Um, so let's say that besides the type of research that, you know, rooms that you do going on this investigations with the Central Indiana Paranormal Group, let's just say you are um, experiencing or hear people talk about ghost stories. You want to verify this ghost stories. How do you go about verifying this stuff without knowing that the person's lying or maybe mentally ill and making the story up or is it real? Because you really you well, can't I, fact check behind everything. That is true. Uh, there are. I don't know if you know this or not, but there are about there's a there is a ghost hunting group like that in almost every town. Yeah, there is. So there are three here. In, I live outside of Cincinnati. There are three in Cincinnati. There are another three in Dayton. I'm between Cincinnati and Dayton and Ohio. So uh, Indiana, they don't have as many because they don't have as many people. But every place that I've gone. They have those. And those people are the ones who actually are very scientific in their approach. They're, most of those groups are not. They just hang out not in the gung, house. Yeah. They're not gung-ho ghost hunter people. They're actually trying to disprove most of the time. Oh, really? Okay. Many of them approach it from a perspective of we will try to show you a rational explanation for what's going on. Because, I mean, I could sit there and like, okay, for example, the Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs is known for being haunted. I could just go Google that, figure out, oh, yeah, there's this guy, there was a woman that threw herself off the balcony. Front, I, it's called front loading. Yeah, I could just go in there and I could sit there and say that I've seen the same thing and advertise it to everybody. And it may not even be true. It just could be a legend that's gotten passed yeah. down that's not correct. So, so it, it, and it, and it's it's front loading. It's if you want somebody to 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 admit to something that they may or may not have done. Sometimes you can front load them or if you want some uh, magicians do this, they front load the people by this can't happen because it's, you know, this card can't pass through skin. So Mm. it must be magic. But instead it's sleight of hand, they front load them with the fact that it's all front loading. Yes. But can't you also front load and manipulate the temperatures of rooms and things like that? If you want your data to be accurate. Uh, I don't think you can front load a, I mean, unless you were able to turn the, the the temperature sensor down on manually on command, that'd be the only way to do a temperature sensor. I mean, it's way back in the day, people that used to be the um, read your palm readers or card readers or stuff like that. They would have sleight of hand tables that manipulate the people the whole entire time. Yeah. And I, I think in a given in, in an individual given situation, I think I think that's right. But I'll be honest, I have read that this same thing has occurred numerous hundreds of places. Yeah, no, where it's they have ghost. And several of those places have people that are there trying to disprove that that's this isn't occurring. And they have, in fact, verified that this is actually accurate. Nothing was done to fake the temperature so you've, thing. You've tried to take. In some of these, some of these decent facts that it's hard to, <clears throat> for lack of a better term, um, discount off right. out of hand. You know, yeah, you saw something. Whatever, you're smoking weed. But <laughs> I'm just teasing. Um, but so you're trying to take these 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 facts that can't be just dismissed out of hand as hearsay or whatever, and roll them into true crime stories. No, to a to my uh, to a novel. To a so novel. What but I've the, done. The crime it, is based off something that really happened, though, right? 
the crime, I, I, I try to use uh, what is a real crime occurring in the area or a typical of a crime. So, for example, here's the one on the eastern shore is about a lynching. OK, and um, most people don't know this because they usually associate lynchings with the Deep South. But there are actually two lynchings that occurred in the area where my my story occurred. Well, in the north is people don't talk about it, but the north was just as racist as the south. You got that right. Yeah. Absolutely. And, one of the, and so what I did was I took the actual crime of that happened and the thing that surrounded that crime. So I don't know if you know this. So this is not nothing to do with yours, but for a lynching. What was com- what commonly happened was the lynching w- were often witnessed by hundreds of people. Yeah, but those people a generation later all disavowed. Nobody ever saw it, and the and the town made up some story, like they committed suicide and hung themselves, for example, uh, as an excuse for how this person died. So I used those actual circumstances of real crime to create a fictional crime to bring that to light. So in my case, I was focusing on racial injustice in the first book. In the second book, it's about human trafficking. So my my story is tied to human trafficking. Have you done a lot of research into human trafficking? Yes, I did for the second book. Yeah. Yes. So that's what's something that we're on. That's kind of what Andrea and I are on a, or at least I am. I'm not sure about Andrea as much. Uh, I'm on a on a hunt to find more information about human trafficking. How could somebody in a modern age that lives in Tulsa or Greenwich, how could they end up being trafficked like that? And it's, it's, it's interesting. There are, um, so I can remember my research. There is a, almost all girls, some guys, but almost all There's a girl that's being trafficked in the U S every 30 minutes today. Wow. There are actually more people in human trafficking now than at any time in human history. And my second book is set on in I wonder Cape May. if that's true because I mean at the height of the slave trade where England yep. was still had slaves and the Dutch had slaves. I wonder if that I mean we were there, 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 there are numerous of documentations people. of the number of people that are in uh, what we think uh, you're thinking of slavery that isn't the same thing as human trafficking. So example, you know, we don't think of most prostitution is being human trafficked, but most prostitution is actually a form of human trafficking. Most of those women are stuck in that in that role from somewhere. Um, most of the human trafficking is not of U.S. people. Most of them yeah. are either from Eastern Europe or South Amer- South or Central America. I heard that there's I mean, a lot coming out of uh, Asia huge, right now. Huge numbers. Um, but I chose to focus on that true life crime in that area because uh, Cape May, which is in New Jersey, is about 15, 20 miles from the largest network of human trafficking in the U.S., which is the interstate highway system that goes goes by. So that's how, how, when you're asking the question about true crime and researching that connected to the fictional story that I've created to highlight that that issue. Okay. I got a question. You were mentioning all religions have some sort of, um, I guess, tie back to ghosts and the spirituality. What to name some examples of how other types of religions view it? I'm curious. Um, Let's see if I can do this for you. Um, Most Native American religions have a belief in ghosts. Most definitely. Um, 
that's a very clear part of that. Hindus have a belief in ghosts uh, that are tied to either um, almost always unexpected death, either uh, either um, accidents or murder. Okay. Um, the Muslims have a go. They they have a belief in a ghost that we call genies. Oh yeah, but oh, yeah. That's where the ghost. genie comes from. Yeah, yeah. That's and that's one of a, several ghosts that they believe in. So is it kind of like the genie that does the wishes or something like that, or is it? Well, that's all part of their part of it. Culture. Yeah, Most of their genies are eviscerating you later and having lunch. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I mean. I mean, genies aren't actually good. So what's Christianity's version? Well, like when I was a Catholic, I'm Catholic, and I was raised Catholic. I'm of a different generation than you guys. I'm a, I'm a conservative Lutheran, so I'm Catholic light. Close, yeah. So <laughs> when I was young, fourth grade, I had to memorize this thing called the Baltimore Catechism, which was our— the Baltimore Catechism. Yeah, it was a set, set of doctrines. Anyway, I don't know why I still know this. Uh, page 36 had a line that said, ghosts are evil spirits that lead you to sin. This was actually something that I was t- had to memorize when I was in the fourth grade. Wow. Oh, wow. I mean, so it, uh, a Church of Latter-day Saints have a belief in oh, ghosts. Yeah. But I'd have to look that up to know exactly what. Well, and, the, and, and the belief from religion to religion are not, I mean, the, what they believe about ghosts are not always the same. Well, Mormons, you get your own planet, so. <laughs> yeah. Let's be uh, nice. But it's true. Let's be nice. I'm I'm being nice. They they get their own planet. There's different versions of Latter-day Saints. I'm Mormons. My- hmm? Mormons. And Mormons. I don't know about I, the Jehovah's I- Witnesses. Those guys who knows. Jehovah Witnesses have one too, but I don't remember exactly. I looked up most of the religion when I did this. My point is that, you know, again, <laughs> Why is it that every religion has a belief in ghosts? Not most religions, not some, every one. Well, if it's that universal, then there has to be some reality behind that that started that. Yeah. Does it? Does everyone have a psychosis? Probably uh, not. And, uh, no. True, but but here, here's another example. Did you know that almost every religion has a belief in a great flood? Oh, yeah. The Great Flood is yeah. something that's provable. They have. Yeah, right. So it's, it's the, in the that, geologic I'm, record. Geological record. But that's my point. So if every religion had a, had the story of the Great Flood, well, that probably means that there was a Great Flood. And then, of course, we can go back and prove that. Yeah. I'm using that same argument. Well, if every religion has a belief in ghosts, then there must be something behind that. It cannot be just uh, smoke and mirrors. That's true. But, you know, a lot of other religions prior to Christianity and all that also believed in multiple gods. And, you know, I guess we're really not going to find that out. That's well, the true. The Bible until says, we do not have any other gods before me, which doesn't exclude the belief in <laughs> other gods. This is correct. If you take it for what it says, I mean, you take out all that theology, all the Pope crap, because, you know, the Christian Bible doesn't. It was like 175 years after Christ. Right. They yeah. finally put it together and they excluded a bunch. And then you've got, yep. what's what's the, Ruth or something like that? I think the Catholics have more books than Lutherans. You guys have, what's the Catholic book that's not in 
the King James. I don't remember which one it is, but I know I've heard that. Yeah, there's. I've never done that comparison, but I've heard that said before. Yeah, and it's it, and it becomes very strange when you look at those kind of things because you're like, I. It, it's hard to trust anything that's written down as being the exact word of God. Of course, because it has to go through a human being to be written down. Yeah. Right. And it doesn't mean necessarily that they wrote it down verbatim. They could be taken shorthand and meant, oh, shit, what does that mean? I don't remember. I'm just going to say this. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's yeah. the problem yeah. with the oral history that finally gets written down a thousand years later. So have you had any personal experiences with ghosts or the paranormal? It- that's almost always the first question I get when I do my speaking engagements, and I could say very little. I've been on several ghost hunts, uh, ghost walks, and on one of those in Nashville, I had an encounter with an orb, but that was really uh, the very smallest. Was it a real orb or something that you that you took picture of? No, I mean I saw it. It wasn't. Okay. I, it wasn't I took a picture of, but you know, and again, one of the from what the people who have studied that said that uh, it's very, very difficult for ghosts to make themselves physically known. And that's the most common way they do that is they have any kind of appearance as an orb. So So the actual documentation of being able to see a physical, what looks like a human being as a ghost is very rare, but the orbs are much more common. So for our listeners, can you define what an orb is? Well, it, it, an orb is a. Um, it's an orb. It appears. I'm sorry. Let's 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 say this correctly. An orb appears to be a free hanging ball of light that can move without that uh, that apparently can move without any effort. Oh, it's like the, the Harry Potter I, light thing, where he takes all the lights yeah. down. That kind of stuff, or yeah. a stitch in Harry Potter. If you want to go, I mean, it's not a piece of light, but it's kind of the same concept. Yeah. Okay. The one that I saw, so I'll just use my own example, was in a room. I'm looking into the room from the doorway, and I saw at what appeared to be a ball of light in the center of the room. The ball of light moved up into the right corner and then came back down and then moved to the left corner and then moved down and then disappeared out the door. I'd be like, was, get fly swatter, it's Tinkerbell. Oh, my gosh, stop. What? No? No. No. It, it was about <laughs> how long? Maybe 20 seconds I saw it, maybe. It's just enough time for your brain to process it, then it disappears. And I was not the only, I was not alone. So other people were watching and seeing the orbit. So it wasn't a stroke. It wasn't a stroke. It wasn't my imagination. (laughs) It wasn't my imagination. It wasn't in my head because other people couldn't see it. So for Um, your research, did you actually like, like talk to people that have had these stories or did you like uh, compile? Oh, really? I've done some of some of the research has been anecdotal talking to people that have actually had an experience with ghosts, talking to ghost hunting groups to find out what they were really documented. A lot of it was uh, done by researching, writing both online and in written sources. I'm curious Um, about the true crime story that's behind the lynching. There were the the lynching, the two lynch, there were actually two lynchings that occurred one almost. And this is where again? Uh, the, the story takes place on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay, so south of Baltimore. Is this where it Baltimore. actually happened? It is actually, yes. Uh, I I created a fictional city, 
I'm sorry, a fictional town for my story. Yeah. But I located the town about 15 miles from where these lynchings actually took place. Interesting. And the lynchings took place in the 40s. My story takes this part of my story takes place in the 60s uh, for on purpose because I was trying to uh, uh, address the civil rights movement. And, and you uh, can write from what you know, which is when you're a younger man. Right. right. So yes. you can write from what you know. And in writing from right. what you know is always going to be the best way to get that book out of your head. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but so why did they lynch? What, who was, why, what were they doing? It was well, in both cases, you know, the lynchings were very similar to other ones that you heard of. Uh, some kind of, it wasn't, I was going to say mistaken identity. That's not what I meant. Um, they thought these two guys had done something to women that they hadn't. And, and they were called out and mob grabbed them and one guy was lynched and the other guy, I'm trying to remember what his relationship was, but it was similar. And it happened within two days, I think, something like that. Well, that's how the whole race riot happened in Tulsa. They, yeah. the, the girl was mad at somebody or upset about something and claimed that this black kid said yeah. something to her and they threw him in jail and whipped him or something and everybody, all the, you know, the people heard about it. And I mean, hell, there was a black wall street there. Yeah. I read, I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so this is very, very common thing. And that was thirties. I think it was maybe twenties. And, uh, so all the people from the neighborhoods came and they just, they, they, it was a riot. And then the white folks just started shooting them. It was bad. Yeah. And then they burned down the whole, uh, Black Wall Street area. Yeah, everybody. Yeah, on wow. fire. Yeah, it's it's yeah, there's it's a really still there. Tragic story. It's it's and, you can go to where Tulsa's not that far from us. You can go to Tulsa and where that happened, it's still flat. They never built anything back on a bunch of that on most of that place. Oh, okay. It's crazy. I I have not been there, but I have heard what you had just said. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we're Northwest Arkansas. We're an hour from Tulsa, so. So it's easy for us to go places like that. But, you know, it's a very common thing that happened back then. If somebody would, you know, it's like most of the time it was either vengeful, like the witch trials, those girls and the witch trials, all they wanted to do was cause havoc and get rid of people they didn't like. Right. Yeah. Well, they wanted attention. Yeah. uh, There's some speculation on that. Yeah. That they wanted attention. There's some speculation that they were under strict type of rules they needed to let off that steam of rigidity yeah. of not able to be and they didn't like that one person either because that old lady remember she was just mean well and, the aaron mankey stories yeah, yeah 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 they think there were some drugs involved with those young women too when i went and studied at salem they've uncovered what they were actually working on not not i mean not intentional but it was something that they were picking up from uh, the work that they that those girls were doing in the fields. Well, like ergot, ergot, is that it's called? Yeah, ergot. It's been too long. I don't remember what the name of it was, but I had never heard that before I went there. Because um, I know I, that that has something to do with the grain. That if you let it sit yes, so long, yeah, it, yeah. it forms, and you can eat it. It's almost like a hallucinogen. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. The only problem they, with that is ergot shows other symptoms that there's like no documentation of that. I think doctors would have picked up on. Makes your Maybe. fingernails black. I mean, it does other things. Maybe. Yeah. They may not have known the difference back then because, you know, I mean, people just weren't educated. We we really don't understand how uneducated people were 
back in the day. Right. They didn't know anything even 150 years ago. Yeah. So what else has influenced your research for your books? Well, you know, in my case, I researched the area so that I'm not a local of any of the places that the books are are situated. So I'm not a local to the Eastern Shore. I know about been to Cape May several times. I chose a place in Florida that I liked a whole lot, but I didn't know either of those. So a lot of the research has to do with the area. So I researched what the local customs are, what the language is, uh, what they like, the restaurants that are there. I researched each, each issue. So the racial injustice, the whole uh, lynching thing for the first one. The second one was human trafficking. And I'll be honest, I did not know a lot about that before I started doing the research on that. And then the third book in Florida is about the abuse of migrant workers in the South. So in each case, what I did is I created a fictional crime that's tied to actual real things that, that happened in the area. Because my, my, my goal is to kind of expose this, these injustices and let make people think about, you know, this is not, you know, what really surprised me in each case. So my stories, are, the basic stories are, are occurring 20 years ago. So the first one takes place in 1998. The second one takes place in 1999. And the third one takes place in uh, 2000. But what I found out was that things have changed almost not at all. Now, we've made a lot of progress in racial injustice, but the, the core issues that existed in 99 um, – so Daryl is in 99, even though the ghost had been killed 30 years earlier, he's encountering the world in 99. Isn't really that much different. I don't think we're any better in human trafficking now and combating human trafficking now than we were in, in 1999. Well, and part of it's due to we we had a gentleman on talking about human trafficking and we tried to pin him down on some answers. And. Well, his intentions, and I believe him, he's right, but he's also, as a school teacher, administrator, you probably know better than this, you can't just clamp down on kids and expect them to behave. No. If you give them no outlet, they're going to be disruptive. Uh, I mean, so that's the only answer he had for us was protect your kids. Don't let them get on social media. Don't let them go anywhere you don't know. Meet the parents. Have everything you you know, da, da, da. it's like, okay, so when am I supposed to have time to, you know, poop? Because I'm up my kid's ass the whole time. Well, my question was, is I have teenagers and I... He would actually be able to speak to this because of a school teacher. And I wanted to know, where's the line that a parent needs to keep in mind where you're up your child's rear end 24-7 to the point that they're so dependent that they can't do anything without you? And they go off to college and they're totally inept on how to handle the world because they're so used to you doing everything for them. Or, you know, you completely ignore them and they go wild and they get picked up. And where's that Where's that balance where you can protect your children from all these predators, but let them develop independence so they can socially function in the world? Because I guess I know of an example of someone who very protective of their child and their child's graduated high school and he's still living at home and in his upper twenties and he can't function without his parents. But at the same time, I mean, where's that line? Well, I think that's a, that's a very good question. Um, My experience as working with lots of parents. And and let's give your background just a little bit. We talked about it before we hit recording or we, and so 
your your background okay. didn't quite make the okay. air. So I I spent um, I spent twelve years um, teaching kids as a teacher or as a college professor, and I spent twenty eight years running school districts. So I was ran school districts as assistant superintendent, superintendent, worked with thousands of parents and kids in that time and saw both great successes of parents and and horrible failures in terms of parents, just the way you're talking, Andrew. I mean, I've never been a fan of helicopter parents, period. I think you do your child a huge disservice. But the the reverse of that is just as seriously bad. That's just true, isn't it? I th- what I have found with parents that have found that balance are three things. One, they have worked very hard to have a honest, open relationship with their children, even recognizing that as teenagers, they hate mom and dad, all that kind of stuff. But they try to make sure that at all times that there's a, an open relationship. That's the first thing. The second thing is they spend a great deal of time making sure kids are aware of the dangers so that they... They talk about real examples of kids that, you know, got on the Internet, got connected with this guy. The guy turns out to be catfishing, all that kind of stuff. And then the third thing that they most of the successful parents I know is that they get their kids to agree that the parents have their passwords so that at no point and the parents that I knew that did it really well, um, they didn't invade their kids space. And they told him, I'm not going to do this all the time, but if I have a concern, I'm going to do this. I'm that's kind of what I, that's kind of what I do. And I get to the point now where my kids will like, my daughter will roll her eyes and she's like, here we go. Mom goes again, giving another example of somebody being stupid. Huh? I was like, well, you need to hear it. That's but, exactly right. But I <laughs> wanted that question answered because I've seen both sides of it. And I'm like, you know, I, I, I get it. But at the same time, it's like your job is to send your kids into the world to be respectable, honest, hardworking adults and pay their taxes and all that other jazz. What I know is that if you never experience the bad side of life, even just a little bit, then you're bound to have that experience. And just how bad do you want that experience to be for your child? How bad do you want that to happen? If you, if you don't want it to happen bad, then they need some exposure to screw it up and failing. Yeah. yeah. Kids need to have a chance to fail while they have a soft landing spot. That's yeah. exactly. That's, that's right. Well, and they, if parents never let kids, you know, I, I had to do with parents who would say, oh, my kid would never do that. <laughs> no, yeah. My kids would never lie. And my answer was, ma'am, I have three wonderful children. But I know all three of them have lied to me one time or another. <laughs> That's just how it is. Exactly. Oh, my child would never do that. That's This would be my answer. I'd be like, so you're telling me your children are from another planet and of another species. What do you mean? Well, because they're not fucking human if they're doing that. I don't know. I've always told them, it's like, you better tell me the truth. Because if I get in front of the principal and find out otherwise, it's not going to go well. Yeah, she makes them pay for their crimes. Yeah, and that's they, well, and I think I didn't say that, but that's one thing that good parents that I know have done too is that they, if kids have to have consequences, you know, I, yeah. there's a really there's a really interesting research study I've that I've never I heard read. that before, Andrea. That kids have to have that, consequences. That I read. So I've never this, heard this, that. this will, I think, make you feel a little better. <laughs> um, they we were it was actually I'm, my my area of expertise is reading. That's what 
when I was an educator, my primary area. English so teacher. The, 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 um, they did a research study of to say which was more uh, predictive of future behavior, um, uh, reading behavior in seventh grade or juvenile delinquency in seventh grade. Uh, the, the question was a little more carefully couched than that. And the bottom line is that the vast majority of kids who get in trouble as a preteen or young teen never end up in trouble as an adult. It's a very small percentage of the people because kids at that age, all kids at that age do stupid things <laughs> and they screw up and they mess up. The vast majority of those kids learn from that experience. They don't repeat delinquent experiences as adults. Unless the they get away is, with it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And are the flip side of that is if, if they have delinquent experience as a reader, if they are a poor reader, if they're behind by seventh grade, that follows them through the rest of their life. They'd never become a successful reader. Interesting. Almost never. So it was an interesting research study that somebody was doing to say which was more predictive. So that should give parents who kids are acting out as a seventh grader, as an eighth grader, as a ninth grader, as a 10th grader, at least a little breathing room thinking, oh, well, it doesn't mean it's, they're going to be in jail in two years. Unless they're already in jail. Well, that's good to know if that you answered that question that I wanted answered before. I just think that, you know, that the trend is nowadays for everyone to be kind of like helicopter parents. And I get very annoyed with helicopter parents. They get on my nerves to no extent. And so it's kind of good to know that at least somebody she, out she there. She doesn't exactly love Karens. No, I don't. Yeah. Well, and I, to be Although, honest, you know. I never knew helicopter parents whose kids turned out the way they thought they would turn out. Well, they're not going to. Kids are always too dependent. Yeah, very dependent. That's why everybody gets a participation medal. It was like asinine to me. It's like, no, somebody has to win. Somebody's got to lose. That's how it works. If you want your kid to try to achieve stuff, they need to try to win this and learn well, what yeah, and think, learn. Yeah, I think what what we need to do what we need to do in school, meaning in school age kids, is teach kids there's nothing wrong with losing. No. That's how you learn. You know, of course you want to win, but most of the time you're not going to win. But every time you lose, you can learn to, how yeah. to do it better. Get a little bit better so later on. on the human trafficking side of it for your novel, um, doing the research into that and knowing the things that you know from the from the uh, uh, educational point of view, uh, how did that? I mean, how 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 did that novel come about? Um, well, you know, I, the first novel was very successful. It gotten several awards, and I'm working on the second novel. And what I try to do is find a an intersection of an interesting place from a haunted shores perspective with a social issue. That's my goal. So when I researched that this area, Cape May is the, <laughs> so Cape May, I don't know if you know this, not Cape May is the most haunted seaport on the Eastern shore. Really? Yeah. So they have all, they have uh, 25, 40 documented ghosts that have been shown to have some kind of evidence over years and years of experience. One of them, the ghost is 150 years old. So just to give you an idea. My so Lord. Dumbledore. It, it became a really interesting place to be able to place a story. And that and it intersected well with uh, the human trafficking a angle once I started doing a research on that. Those two things came together. 
and the story blo- and the story blossomed from that. So, what are some of the ghost stories from that? From the I guess well, Cape May? there's a uh, there, uh, there's a gentleman that I both talked with and learned from, and he's written a couple of books of ghost stories that he's I actually want off around. the shelf. Cool. And, and I, I'm, gonna pull, I'm pulling the ghost stories off here. His name is Craig McManus. And he's done a great deal of research on ghosts. Craig McManus. Uh, yeah, it's M-C-M-A-N-U-S. Um, uh, he's, and so what I did is I started with what he gave me and then did some cross-referencing with other sources to document some of the ones. And I actually chose two of the uh, documented ghosts that are supposed to have existed um, as, to be participants in my fictional story. So Daryl gets some information from either of those that helps him along to solve the mystery of, of, of the ghost. Um, And one, for example, here's an example. One of them is a um, lady of the evening from a bordello that existed on one of the main streets in Cape May. The building's still there, but it's something else now, obviously. And, and she frequents a particular establishment that is featured in my novel and has been seen by numerous patrons over a period of years and years and years. She has a very distinctive look. It's very much of the period of the time and stuff. So kind of she stands out to somebody who can see her. Um, and Daryl, who is the, my main character, who sees ghosts, but he's not very happy with this particular ability. He is able. He recognizes and seizes her. She ends up leaving him a message that helps him kind of move along his path to solve the mystery of the of the young woman's death. Nice, interesting, very interesting. And it's based on a true crime. And it's based on was well, it's based on a true ghost. Sometimes the ghosts have not have had unnatural deaths, but others are not. So, for example, I just gave a presentation in a major hotel in Cincinnati. Anybody from the area will know this hotel. It's called the Netherland Hilton. It's been around since the 30s, and it has a very famous ghost. I bet you it's uh, obvious. It's uh, beautiful. It's a, yeah, it's a gorgeous place. Yep. Uh, and it has a famous ghost called the woman in green hmm. who, uh, who killed herself, who committed suicide after her husband, who was a painter working on the, uh, on the creation of this hotel, died. At work, and she died in the 30s. And there probably have been 50 sightings of her since that time hmm. by guests and workers in that hotel. Interesting. So those are the. I mean, and Kate May has, oh, you know, another one with in the hotel that I have Daryl and his girlfriend staying. Uh, it's the Inn of Kate May. Uh, there's a very famous lady in blue who is a former worker at the hotel that had died under mysterious circumstances. And she has appeared numerous times in the hotel. So she makes an appearance in my story as well. Well, let me ask you, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here and ask you some questions about uh, writing. Since you say you, uh, you, your focus was on English. Uh, yes. In when you're teaching. So obviously you've taught this over and over and over again. So at the very least you've got it that got it down by rote because <laughs> all the years you had to say, open your book to page 35. Um, the uh, hero's journey is something I'm a, I'm an award-winning screenwriter. Uh, 
the hero's journey is something we base most of our movies off yes. of. Yep. Is <clears throat> now that's the, obviously the classic three act structure, and then you got the five act and the seven act structure. Mm-hmm. And seven acts, you don't see a whole lot. I think what is it? Godfather is a five act. I can't remember. Most serialized TV is a five act structure, and it got built that way because of the commercial breaks. It was the best way yeah. to shove a commercial break in. Um, so when we go to the movies, specifically talking about movies, uh, not sure how many movies you've seen. I'm sure you've seen a few. Um, otherwise, you know, you're not a yes. good American at that point. I'm just saying. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Got to see at least three if you want to be an American. Come on. Um, so... <laughs> Why are we stuck on the three act journey or three on the uh, hero's journey? Why, why can't it, we're stuck and I've tried to break it and failed miserably many times. The five acts is okay. It's just not quite as good as that three act structure. Any thoughts on that as a writer? That's a very, I don't, I don't know that I have um, a great deal of insight on that. I have seen authors not of screenplays, not of movies or TVs, but authors break beyond that uh, that five or seven act. If you've read uh, um, uh, historical novels, okay, uh, Ken Follett is probably among the best of anybody who does historical novels. Okay, um, he has a trilogy about the building of a cathedral, of all things, in medieval England, which doesn't sound like it would be that interesting, but it's absolutely spellbinding. Um, and that in that story, what was I this, don't know what how was many... What was that author's act- name again? Follett. Ken, he's British. Ken Follett. The name of the series, the first book in the series is called Pillars of the Earth. Okay. Um, oh, that I forget what the next familiar. two, I've read all three of them. Did you and there's a Andrea. Uh, that sounds real familiar. I don't. I don't think I've read him, but I. She reads a lot of medieval stuff. I've, I this think is, I've heard of this. This is actually this is probably the best-selling historical fiction out there. I think. Nice. He's certainly, um, and he just finished a, a prequel to that called "The Evening and the Morning," which I just read, which is fantastic as well. Um, but m- to your point is. I don't know how many acts. They're probably 12 acts, 15 acts. Yeah, it's a novel. It's different for the novels. Well, it evolves over all three novels. Yeah. So the same characters go through all three novels. So It's not really any acts in novels. It seems to be different. Well, but in his case, he has like part one, part two, part three, part four. Well, that's what chapters are about. You know, you can flip and like... I like yeah. Tom Clancy and Clancy's chapters are at the when you start reading the, any of his novels at the very beginning, nothing that he's talking about in each chapter makes any sense as far as the other chapter. It's not until the end that. of the novel that everything. Oh, now I see. Yeah. yeah, I know. But a lot of historical type stuff, books and stuff like fiction sometimes have like section one or act one, act yeah. two, act three. But right. I don't know. I've I've always been. It's been my my cross that I've been pounding on for a while about this three act structure stuff because Transformers the movie 
three acts. Um, I mean, I, I guess training day had five acts. Didn't it? Wasn't a three act structure. I'm saying, is well, there some I, hard, fast rule saying you have to have this? It I'm, just doesn't, doesn't pay off if you don't do it that way. People don't like it. Well, I, I think I, I think there may be some help for getting beyond that with with what's occurring on streaming now. Yeah. Because now you've got, instead of a movie, you know, like Star Wars, they didn't do a movie. They did 12 45-minute vignettes for Baby Yoda. Yeah, basically. You know? Yeah. Yeah, right. That's so correct, I, actually. I think that may, that may find some... That's a good insight around. into that, by the way. Because when you said that, I'm like, Oh yeah, that actually makes a whole hell of a lot more sense to me about the this the the Boba Fett uh, 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 Mandalorian Mandalorian yeah Mandalorian, Mandalorian. right Mandalorian yeah. and yep. he doesn't talk much he he says like <laughs> two words an episode seriously really yeah he doesn't say much that's right and it's always you know interactions between him and Baby Yoda well it's Yoda it's baby well, and. <laughs> um, I think, you know, the answer to your question, I think, is twofold. One, it has to do with tradition in the sense of how it was originally conceived. Yeah. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe believed that you should never write anything as you couldn't, that had to be take more than one sitting to read. That was his belief. So Edgar Allan Poe has no novels. He only wrote short stories and poetry. Yeah, that negates all of, uh, all of the I, literature past, what, 1940. Right, exactly. I know that. Yeah. But I think what happened, I mean, that started with that and is kind of extended beyond that. And the commercial nature of literature, I'm put, using literature in the broad sense yes. of being novels, screenplays, whatever. Magazines. The commercial nature is such that, you know, if you wanted to, you want to have as many options as possible, you have to adhere to these, these strictures. And it's what people get used to. People get used to, then that's what. Yeah. And well, the people who are. The people who are publishing this and producing the movies and things like that, they're not interested in your story. All they're interested in is how much money your story is going to of make. Course. That's exactly right. And if, so, so I, I, I also run a nonprofit called Arts and Entertainment Council where we teach people how to work inside of the entertainment business. And the first thing that we tell them, and this makes so many people not want to be in the entertainment business, but – it's a cold hard fact. You treat it like a business, you'll succeed. If you treat it like it's your art, you have a 90% chance of failure. Yeah, I'd agree. And because the people in there are like, why? My art should speak for itself. It does. It speaks for itself. But do you want it to speak to everyone or do you want it to speak to just the five people that you forced to look at it? <laughs> five people who agree with you yeah, yeah right. i would say forced to look at it with a lot of these people yeah, I, I, <laughs> it's not always 100%. good <laughs> but it it's it's business first and the reason for that really the truth behind it is the people who are going to make your stuff explode and everybody's like oh my god what a great novel what a great poem what a great tv show those folks probably don't have one bone in their body that could be considered close to artistic, but they're really, really, really good at Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> well, everybody, someone's got to be. Yeah, <laughs> but got to make money. 
Yeah, and if it doesn't make money, why? You know, I mean, there's some people out there. If it doesn't make money, why do it? And it's it's tough because we talk to a lot of authors, and like we're doing this podcast for just fun. We're just having a good time at it. We're just yeah. horsing around. We don't have any sponsors or anything like that. Not for real. You know, I I kite the this license for Explore Scientific for our music. Because I say they underwrite it. Well, it's because I'm the manager of that department. I can use that product for whatever I want, and no one cares. So there we go. We get to use the music. It's a you know license underwritten by Explore Scientific through Artlist IO. If you want some music, go there. It's cool. Anyway, but you know nobody's writing us a check for it. We're just screwing around, and Andrea yeah. and I are just doing it for funds. And why not? Why not? I yeah. do have Would one you? question for you. What do you think of those ghost shows? You mean the ones on TV? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think they, you know, like everything else in that in this area, they run the gamut from some that are serious and really are doing a authentic try to effort, and others that are just doing it for either the money or the fun. Who and do you think is authentic? Oh, I don't. Uh, I, I, That's a tough. You're, you you're asking, know, you're no, asking no. him to burn down his house. You no, know that, right? right. If you prefer question. not to say, that's fine. No, 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 no. I don't. It's not. Be, not that I'm not trying to out somebody or anything else. I don't watch enough of them. I've seen some of all of them, but I don't watch enough of them to, to say, oh, this one. Pay attention. This one. This one is really real. It's like everything else. So, for example, if you are a reading of ghost fiction, okay, most ghost fiction fall into one of two categories they're either what i they're either the stephen king variety the scare your pants off stay up all night which andrea very much enjoys i like stephen king which, there's nothing wrong with any of these or they are what i call the casper the friendly ghost uh, uh, which it's, she absolutely abhors yeah which is you know my grandmother himself. died and left me this bookstore and she helps me solve mysteries and all that <laughs> okay. uh, the very typical of a cozy that a lot of cozies that have that um, what I tried to do with mine was make it much more realistic. So the way the ghosts don't solve any mysteries, the ghosts don't have any superpowers. What uh, everything that a ghost in my story does has been documented as having it actually occur in the real world. There's been documentation of how ghosts have appeared. Uh, that's one of the things that distinguishes, I think that distinguishes my books from most other ghost readers. You won't, they're, they are not terrifying. They are not, they're, so they're a bit eerie. Have you seen the TV terrifying. show Supernatural? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Have you seen the TV show Supernatural? I've seen a couple episodes of it, yes. The first six seasons are the creators. They're, they're, they're true to what the creator of the show wanted. After that, just ignore it. And all these Supernatural fans out there, bite me. I don't care. The first six seasons are good. When Dean comes back to when when Sam comes back to life, it's ridiculous. Anyway, so but I, I those are kind of cool because they run every possible ghost story that's ever been told. They yeah. they do everything in that thing. It's fun, but you're right. I mean, some of those things are just absolutely impossible. And like a poltergeist, I guess a poltergeist, but. Once, when, unless the there's a secret government organization covering up these crimes done by there's poltergeists. A, there, there's a very there. I when and when I've done my research, there are very few instances I've ever heard of an actual poltergeist. A poltergeist, poltergeist is a ghost that's trying to cause harm. Yeah, and very few, like 
maybe I've read of two that seem to be beyond documentation. And, you know, the, the one problem is that because of our sophisticated photography ability, it's difficult to separate a real ghost photo yeah. from anything faked. Yeah, even I, sitting at my own home computer, can I can do anything, anything, for as far as apparitions are concerned, or or change, right. you know, deep deep fake. You, they've got AI machines that you go on yep. the web, and you can, I can become Nicolas Cage tomorrow, you know, and then yep. and yep. then Nick Fury the next. I don't know, whatever. But hmm. I and I just tell it what I want. You've seen the Reface app. That's true. The Reface app is creepy. Yeah, but it, it it did a pretty good job on the Titanic thing. Still, it's just you're right about it's it's hard to be able to distinguish. So we really may never one hundred percent be able to yeah. scientifically prove this. Remember the ever. thing I've I've said this in many episodes. Always remember. Abraham Lincoln was the first to bring this up. Never believe anything you read on the internet. And I saw that on Facebook the other day. So I know it's true. All right. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln believed in ghosts. Did you know that? Oh yeah. Him and his wife. Yeah. yeah. He, well, he actually uh, spoke to the ghost of his son on a regular basis in the white house. Yeah. And really? she would hold seances and all yeah. sorts of good yeah. stuff. Well, originally he was against his wife holding seances. She did. Uh, he gave in eventually, yeah, and only participated in two, I think, of the seances. But but his, the political his, decision for him, I think, he believed that his son, which he the young son, he lost to typhoid. I think I don't remember, but a disease. I mean, he, he lost in the White House. Every kid to disease. He had one that and, lived. Did he finally have one? He spoke to him on a regular basis. He believed that. The, that's another thing we didn't talk about. You know, you'd be amazed how many famous people. Scientists, athletes, politicians, really intelligent people have seen ghosts, have believed in ghosts, have had an, have had an encounter with a ghost. Uh, that's probably when I share this with my audiences, they're probably more surprised with that than anything else. Well, give us some examples. I'm sorry. What are your examples of people that believe in ghosts? Um, well, do you know about you know about Al Unser Jr.? You know about Al Unser Jr.? So Al Unser Jr., famous race car driver. Yeah. Um, Back in 2004, he was running a, a practice run on a track in South Carolina. I don't know the details, but some big crash, car exploded, he's in the car. Uh, his crew, pit crew, comes running over to rescue him, thinking that they have lost their meal ticket because the car is on fire. They find him dragged about 20 yards away from the car in the grass when he comes to he said a ghost had pulled him from the car and saved him hmm. and later he said the ghost was the ghost of his father al Unser jr so that's just one example uh ronald reagan uh saw the ghost a tall tra tall transparent figure in the lincoln bedroom yeah and he never went back in that room again that, of course, was Abraham Lincoln. That same ghost was seen by... Uh, Which isn't really the Lincoln bedroom, because Eisenhower gutted the entire place. Just so you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the same ghost was seen by uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, Hillary Clinton, yeah. um, William Winston Churchill, all of them. Um, so those are just a few It's examples. interesting. When Eisenhower went in and gutted the White House because it was falling apart. It hadn't been touched since it was built. And 
they had electrical wires and plumbing just going all crazy because it wasn't, you know, when it was built, there was no electrical. Wasn't there was yeah. no plumbing. So yeah. over time, they've put plumbing in and water and electricity and light bulbs and stuff like that. And Eisenhower walks in and he's like, this place is going to burn down. <laughs> we And he talked to Congress and they got the money because remember, presidents can't spend a dime without asking Congress. They talked to Congress, got the money, and they gutted the White House. All that was left of it was the outside. That's all that was left. And there's a picture that someone took, and they some people claim it shows a ghost running in this gutted White House. It's this bunch of rubble on the ground, right, and the walls and some scaffolding and a couple construction dudes. And there's a picture that shows this person walking across a, 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 a schmear walking across the background of the of the of the white house that's been gutted hmm. and they say what's well, a ghost well i know a little bit about photography and that's just a long exposure and some dude's like walking by and he just look like a smear but that's uh, up for debate some people think i'm crazy but so yeah i mean there's ghost sightings all the time around there who else believes in ghosts uh Paul McCartney, did you know that Paul McCartney recently shared that John, the ghost of John Lennon helped him write his most recent songs? Interesting. Hmm. Uh, that dementia or is it John? What? And he said it, he literally, not figuratively, helped him write. Huh. Okay, let me give you a more. Um, Thomas Edison, the, you know, Thomas Edison is, of yep. course, that he... Not only did he believe in ghosts, he was working on a spirit phone so he could talk to the dead. Yes. That's how he came up with the record player, I think, wasn't it? it, it well, part of the same uh, research. Research he yeah. was doing. Yeah. Came up with that. <clears throat> I know um, um, uh, one of our one of the most famous people that used to be the most famous until the past probably 15 years, 20 years. He's come back in popular culture, but I don't know if anybody actually knows this person exists as um, the writer of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, yeah he no, believed in God. It, isn't that crazy? The guy that wrote the most logical character in all of literature is the complete believer in everything yep. paranormal. Hmm. Yeah, him and Houdini Although, he, were friends, and Houdini kept telling him, "You're an idiot," and he's like, "No, watch." <laughs> Houdini yeah, knew it was right. all just a trick half the time, because that's what he did. Houdini was a he he was a sleight of hand guy. They put him in the thing and put him underwater, and he'd get out because he had the key the whole time. Just nobody ever saw it. Um, Andrew, how about Marie Curie? You know who Marie Curie is? Mm -hmm. She's the only woman to win two Nobel prizes. She believed in ghosts. And attended seances. So, I mean, I was really surprised. Uh, I told, uh, Abraham Lincoln was one of the ones that I uncovered. Matthew McConaughey. The, oh, yeah. Recent actor. Yeah. You know, so in every area, there That's are really out people that play bongos in the nude. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> so he got busted. The cops get the cops called on him in his Texas house because he's out back smoking weed, playing the bongos in the nude at like two, four o'clock in the morning. The cops were like, hey, look, you got to stop doing this. And he answers the door just completely butt naked. Doesn't even care. Well, <laughs> I guess to each their own. That's so, Matthew McConaughey. Right. Is there any, do you think there's certain people that can't see ghosts or you think everyone can? 
Um, I don't know that I have enough knowledge to do that. Those people who have studied it said that uh, it's pretty much like any other skill. You know, like some people are great in basketball and other people are great in writing. And that some people simply are more attuned to that ability some have than been. others. Uh, you know, so uh, that obviously children believe that they see ghosts a lot more than adults do. So there's a line of thinking that some people don't lose that sense of innocence and are able to make that connection uh, more easily than others. Uh, you know. Interesting. Uh, I'm not sure I know enough to be able to mm-hmm. make. I think my best way of summing up what I believe is what Shakespeare said. Shakespeare said, there is more to heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. And I, I the, I think that's the best way to explain it. There are just more things than you can explain rationally to, to dismiss out of hand. That's kind of the bottom line. I agree. I think there's certain things out there that you I've got to find a Mark Twain quote because I like that guy. His quotes are always hilarious. Mark Twain? Yeah. I, I have included several Mark Twain quotes in my book. I'd, my favorite is, my favorite is, in the beginning, God created idiots. That was for practice. Then God created school boards. <laughs> That's cute. That's cute. Just, I, Andrea hates my one. When I have my character angry at a school board member in the yeah. book. That's <laughs> What's the one I always say? I don't know, Paul. Oh, my God. <laughs> She's been so upset with me all day. No. Um, I don't. Something about stop worrying about things that probably aren't even going to happen. I've known many troubles, most of which never happened. Right. Yes, it's true. Uh, my favorite, you know, Mark Twain made much more money speaking than writing. Did yes. you know that? Yes. He didn't make it there that much money from all his wonderful writing books, but he would be go around speaking, and people would come to see him like they would see, you know, a, a performer now. Well, and that's that's where he developed most of his. That's where ability. the money's made in music. The money's made in music by, um, you know, it's made music by doing the live performances. Selling your albums yeah. really didn't make you any money because you got to share it with 50,000 other people and that's the record true. company. It's yeah. true. And you get up there and do a live performance. Yeah, that's we used all to you. host, at school districts, we used to host young authors, you know, uh, and illustrators. And I talked with a lot of them and they said they made much more money <laughs> coming around talking to kids than they ever did from the books that they wrote. Oh, so wow. how would you, one last thing. <clears throat> What words of encouragement would you have for anyone who wants to become a writer um, but doesn't want to just feel like they're spinning their wheels and it it feels like they've been pushed down and and told that they're not good enough or shouldn't even try? Yeah, you know, I, I, first of all, I, when I, when I have a chance to talk with emerging writers, which I do a lot of, uh, I, I try to be honest with them and about the challenges that they face because it is, you know, they estimate between one and two million books, new titles will be released this year. Jeez. So exactly that right. means that whatever you, whatever you have in your quill uh, is going to be really hard pressed. It's going to have a tsunami of books that will overwhelm them. So I try to make sure that they do it for the right reason. You should be writing because you want to write, not because you want to get rich, not because um, you think everybody needs to hear what you have to say. Uh, I always tell them 
first of all, find a writer's group. I've found that's kind of like the single most important thing in my development has been to find a group that we meet every week. Uh, we share what we're working on and we get feedback to help us become better writers. That makes – not only does it give you part of a community so that you've got people to shore you up when you feel like you want to just quit and stop. You have people that are honest with you and tell you this isn't working. Try this instead. Along, as long as you have a good writer's group, it makes a world of difference. And the other that, advice that I give them – yeah. The other advice I give them, if they haven't done it, that they need to go to a writing conference. Really? I've had very, very good experiences at writing conferences uh, from everything from meeting famous best-selling authors and sitting down and talking with them and learning from them to networking with all kinds of writers all over the United States. And as well as learning your craft, you learn stuff you wouldn't learn other places. Uh, it just makes you feel less alone. It makes you feel less alone and it makes you have at least some, you know, I know I can do this. I feel like I could get this done. So if I, usually if I'm honest with writers and do that, if they, if they know what the, what, what they're up against yeah, uh, and they're willing to put the time in to do that, you know, that's exactly how I know. Yeah. That's exactly what I tell uh, budding actors and filmmakers. I, the exact same thing. Yeah. Uh, it's the best advice there is. You should own. I, one guy asked me, "Well, if you're if if the odds are that bad, why are you doing it?" And I said, "Because I love it. I, yeah. I don't do it because I'm writing the next great American novel, or I expect it." <laughs> There's a hundred thousand podcasts out there, and yet we still make one every day or every week. Uh, why do we do it? Because we're screwing around. We enjoy it. Yep. I don't know. We. Like I think it. we enjoy it. She's mad at me today. I'm not mad at you, but we're just. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's I think it's fun, so you know I enjoy it. That's exactly right. All right, that's why I do my you know I, I do I should plug my podcast. So I have a podcast called Great Stories about Great Storytellers, and it gives kind of the inside backstory that people have not heard of of famous authors, directors, and poets. Yeah, if you ever need a know nothing, uh, no one's ever heard of a podcast person with you. Just let me know. I'll be glad to do it because I have quite a, I appreciate that. When it comes to screenwriting, I have a really in-depth knowledge. Uh, so it's, it's, it sounds like there might be a, might be a place for someone like that has the knowledge that I have. I've got, uh, just so you know, I got seven AP awards, two best, uh, uh best screenplay awards, uh, 15, um, 15 or 17, 17, uh, film festivals, and the list goes on. So, yeah. Wow. I'll be glad to talk to us, talk with you guys more in depth on that if you ever wanted to. So, I tend, Sounds good. I tend not to get that. into it here too much because it talks over Andrea and Andrea's head because she's, you know, she started talking about nursing. I could keep up. That'd be about it. <laughs> you know, so I start right. talking about my profession. She can, she's, I mean, it's, it gets tough sometimes. It's like, I don't know. Well, I just thought we were summoning demons when you were talking about that medication. <laughs> sounds and, like it sometimes. And you guys are in, are in Arkansas? Arkansas. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. Yep. 
So uh, tell us the name of your books and where they can find them one okay. more time. And do you have a website? All right. I, of course. Um, okay. So let me give you the essential details. Um, my latest books are, are uh, called The Haunted Shore Mysteries. There are three of them. Uh, uh, Blood on the Chesapeake, Crimson at Cape May, and Scarlet at Crystal River. Uh, they're available any place that you buy books, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Nook, uh, Apple Books, uh, Kobo, any place that you would normally get books. They're available in print, in ebook, and audio. Uh, you can find all that information and a whole lot more, as well as links to any of those uh any of those uh, locations on my website, which is simply uh, authorrandyoverbeck.com. Can you spell that? Uh, you can find me folks. Author, Randy, R-A-N-D-Y. R-A-N-D-Y, O-V-E-R-B-E-C-K. Cool. Dot com. You can find me on Twitter at Overbeck Randy. My Facebook page is also Author Randy Overbeck. Okay. As well as my YouTube channel is Randy Overbeck and available any of those places. Uh, oh, and Instagram too. Instagram. Well, I love but the much theme. Less- Sorry. I love the theme of your books. The idea of the real kind of real actual ghost stories entwined with your fiction. I think that's a wonderful idea. I like it. I've been very pleased with the response. Uh, the books have won, uh, uh, so far, collectively, they won nine national awards, and the first two have become bestsellers. So nice. Well, very congrats. hopeful. Working on the fourth one now. And now, do you go through a publisher? Yeah, the publisher's name is Wild Rose Press. Okay. Uh, it's a small press out of New York, or a small press. They have 500 authors. Wow. Uh, okay. A lot of times, really, the folks we, inter- we interview, they don't have uh, a... Um, press uh, they're it's, indie they're indie published yeah yeah i i have some in my writers group that are in and, and i respect them too it's just not the way i want to go and i this this company i really like it's a really they're very professional they do a great job they pr- produce a great product that's good and they give you good support they don't give you much marketing support but well that's the expensive my, part so uh, well, uh, and i've learned from even my best-selling writer friends that even people with big companies, they don't get much marketing support either. Yeah. Random house. They're not going to, you know, penguin. They're not going to, they've got 10,000 books and they're, they're, if they do any marketing, that's big money. It goes to one, maybe two titles a year. That's just the way it works. If if you're in the mid list, you don't get much of anything. Yeah. I don't get nothing. Exactly right. Which is where mine would land if it was in that case. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's you know they just the, the, they just have too much and there's not enough money or to go around for everyone and and you could have I I submitted a, a story uh, my first ten pages to a agent about a, a book called Gracie Burroughs. It's about a little girl who lived in forty uh, seven and her father just came back from war. Her mom was dead. And it was a nice, cute story. And the agent's like, I love the story. It's a beautiful story. I think it's one of the best ones I've read. But there's no place in the market for it, so we can't publish it. Right. That's exactly. Yeah. Well, well the, the, my, my, my uh, experience, so I tried to go to a big publisher. I tried to go through an agent to go a big publisher. I, I uh, queried scores of agents. 
I had a dozen, 12 agents that, that expressed either partial or complete manuscripts. And I had a couple of them do say something similar to that. A couple of them said that they liked the story, but they didn't know how they would, who, who they would market it to. Right. And that's, and if you can't, if you don't know that, then they, if they don't know that you don't want them handling it either. Right. Because exactly. it's just going to die at a closet somewhere. So, yep, I know. Anyway, so well, and that's and so what I did then is I then I queried small presses, uh, three of them. I don't remember all three names. Two of the presses offered me a contract. I ended up going with Wild Rose Press, and I've been that was in seventeen. Oh, so I've okay. been with them five years. That's good. That's good. Well, yep. Andrea, very, very is there piece. anything else that you want to ask? No, just thank you so much for being on. I really enjoyed the experience, guys. I enjoyed talking to both of you, and I appreciate your uh, insightful questions and your candor. And uh, uh, I look forward. To, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts. I'll try to catch some more when I have some time. But appreciate that. Thank thanks you. Thanks for having me. On. And like I said before, the person that you don't have to worry about what you say, Andrea, you have to worry about what I'm going to say. This is true. <laughs> so I guess that's it. And thank you again for being on. Yes, thank you. Paul, Andrea, thank you. Uh, let me know when this, yeah, uh, when this drops, and, and I will be doing the best I can to get get the word around. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Andrea and I need your help. If you like our episodes, please give us a five-star rating and a review. Not sure exactly how that helps us, but it does, and it makes people want to listen. When they see that five stars and a good review from you, so go to wherever you're listening to your podcast, Apple iTunes, Spotify, iHeartMedia, wherever, and hit that five stars. 